0: Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Timothy 6 6 through 10. But godliness with contentment is great pain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare. Into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Good morning. My name is Steve Mahoney. My wife, Gretchen, and I have been members here at Ogletown since 2016, and I'm honored to have the opportunity to share the word with you today. I've been interested in the book of Ecclesiastes for many years, and I appreciate Pastor Evans' lessons as he's led us through a study of this book. It's been interesting. It's been challenging. uh, It's been refreshing in a lot of ways. I became interested in Ecclesiastes many years ago when I took a class on the Old Testament wisdom literature, the books of Job, Ecclesiastes, and Proverbs. And my teacher said, Ecclesiastes is a balance to overly simplistic answers to life's problems. And I think if you've been tracking through the series, if you've been here for any of it, you've noticed that uh, he leaves no stone unturned in his search for meaning, and for truth. When I uh, first uh, became a Christian, and as a young person, uh, there was a lot of a mindset in, in the circles I traveled with of the idea that, well, if you're good, you know, if you tithe, and if you try to keep your you know, self clean, God would bless you financially. It was sort of like if you take care of God, God will take care of you mentality, and uh, i read books like uh, Think and Grow Rich, and the idea was that this was all within our power to become this kind of person. Uh, but then as I observed life, I noticed that, that that wasn't the case. It was overly simplistic, and Ecclesiastes balances some of that for us. I also have a feel, feeling like Ecclesiastes is contemporary, that a lot of the issues and a lot of the things that the author brings up are things that we face today. For example, Um, A co-worker of mine said, did you hear about the mayor of a certain city and uh, corruption? Well, Ecclesiastes speaks very much to corruption, to taxes, uh, to things, fortunes made, fortunes lost. A lot of the same things we may read on the news or or see today. I think he's what we would call today an influencer. At at his time, he would be, uh, I don't know if he would be the Cristiano Ronaldo, with 700 million followers, um, like he he is today. But I have to say he's had quite an influence, if you think about the fact that he's been at it for over 2,000 years. And so I hope we'll hear the words that he has to say and we'll we'll listen to his words. So I've called the lesson today, Pitfalls of Prophets. Uh, Koheleth, as we're calling the, the teacher, is on a quest for meaning. He's looking for a, a purpose and meaning in life under the sun. That's the parameters. It's based on his senses. What can he see, feel, hear, touch? Uh, what can he find out under the sun that is profitable? We find that a lot of his, his uh, words are in market language. Where is their gain? Where is their profit? And so we get the idea that he's speaking to these young go-getters, and he's trying to point them in a direction that where they will receive profit where life will be profitable for them. And so in the first couple of chapters he talks about looking for meaning in work, looking for meaning in wisdom versus foolishness, looking for meaning in wine, building projects, wealth, music and a harem. So he spends his time doing these and and he doesn't wait till the end to tell us what he found, does it? Right at the beginning of the letter, right at the very beginning, he says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Vanity meaning meaningless, just a breath, uh, no sense to it. And so that's what we're going to look at today is a further dive into the idea of wealth. We've talked a couple of times about the idea of of work and meaninglessness and finding meaning in work. Today we're going to focus specifically on wealth. And our section of Ecclesiastes today, rather long one, is uh, 5, 8 through 6, chapter 9. Chapter 5, verse 8 through 6, 9. So you can turn there. By the way, if you need a Bible, we have some Bibles on the table in the back. On that Bible, Ecclesiastes is on page 520, just a little bit past the Psalms and Proverbs. I have to point that out because we don't always know You know exactly where that is if we're not familiar with it. So, we're going to address this morning two questions. The first question is what does he say about wealth? Particularly, what I'm asking is why does he consider the accumulation of wealth to be vanity? Why does he consider that to be meaningless? And the second question we're going to address is does he have the final word? is this scripture's final definitive answer on the question of wealth, particularly wealth as it relates to happiness. So with all that in mind, we're going to begin reading uh, in chapter 5, verse 8. We're going to look at four vignettes. He's a storyteller, so we're going to look at four little stories where he goes through and talks about wealth, and then he'll have a couple of other points. There's, altogether, there's like seven things. Now, I was taught when I was taught preaching... I asked, how many points should a sermon have? The answer was, well, seven is probably too many. Uh, It should have at least one, right? So we'll we'll try to have one or two. But he talks about a lot of different things. So I'm going to touch on them briefly, and then we'll try to bring it together and make some sense of it for our lives. Okay, chapter 5, verse 8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness... Do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gained for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes?" Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. So this is his first little vignette, and uh, I'm calling this, as goods increase, so do those who consume them. Now that's something we may not think about when we think about what happens if I, you know, hit the lottery. Oh, Somebody's going to come for a cut of that, aren't they? What happens if I make that big sale and that big commission? What happens if I win that slip and fall lawsuit? Well, basically what he's saying is people are going to come with their hand out. The people that help you get there are going to want to cut. Uh, The people that need a little help in your friend circle or people you hadn't seen in years are going to be looking for a little help. In the beginning of this section, he talks about government. And he says, you know, you think you own the land? You think the land is yours? Well, guess what? There's somebody that's going to be looking for taxes, tax money. And then there's somebody above that and somebody above that, even apparently all the way up to the king. So if you think the land is yours, try not paying taxes for a year or two. Find out what happens. Uh, as the goods increase, so uh, do those who consume them. I think we see this all the time in our lives and this is the first pitfall of profit what you have when you have it it's not really yours it's not yours to keep somebody else wants it okay let's move on to our second vignette this is chapter 5 verses 13 through 17 there's a grievous evil I have seen under the sun that's an important word right there grievous it means it's it's worse "...grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is the father of the son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go, naked as he came, and shall take nothing from his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go." And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness with much vexation and sickness and anger. So here in our second vignette, we see that as goods increase, as wealth grows, uh, so do those who will try to take it from you, who will try to rip you off, who will try to get you to invest in a foolish venture. So the picture I see in my mind is a guy climbing the ladder of success, right? That's a metaphor we like to use. And this person is getting their hand on the final rung of the ladder. Up they go. Just as they're about to reach for the top, the ladder gets kicked out from under them. Here's a person who has built their wealth painstakingly maybe over years. It says they they lived in darkness and vexation. They denied themselves everything else to get to this goal. And they just get to the point, and that last investment is a dud. It's a bad one. Costs them everything. And there's a little detail in here that um, is significant as well. And he says, and he had a son. So his loss was not just for himself, and his loss was major. In their time, in, in their culture, it was the rich, the powerful, the money makers who were the the leaders in their culture. They were the the ones sitting at the city gates rendering judgments and uh, making sense of the world for others. So to lose one's wealth would mean to lose one's prestige, to lose one's power, to lose one's influence, to, in the eyes of others, lose one's blessing in the eyes of God. But it was not only the one who lost it, it was the son, it was the children as well. Here they were poised to stand in the line of the parents who were wealthy and successful, only to see all that drop away. Kind of a dark message, isn't it? Hang in there, there'll be some light, I promise. So today we see these same kinds of things going on all the time. I mean, it's like we're reading today's news. I can just mention the name Ponzi and I think most of you will know what I'm talking about. Now Ponzi was not Robin Hood. He did not rob from the rich to give to the poor. He robbed from everybody to enrich himself and it lasted until he ran out of people to take advantage of. And we see people all the time acting this way even in our culture and our society today. If you got money, there's a target on your back. If you got money, it may be because you have a number on your back. According to Sports Illustrated, first of all, did anybody watch the Super Bowl? Did you watch it all the way to the end, you know, like past the overtime, when they're all standing on the field celebrating, right? All the confettis dropping down, you you watch that. I I didn't quite make it that far. But I know what happened, because it happens every year. Everybody goes out on the field and it's it's just the winning team, right? 53 Kansas City Chiefs. 53 Chiefs out there celebrating. According to Sports Illustrated, 80% of those Chiefs will be broke three years following their retirement from the NFL. Now those are the opinion leaders, aren't they? They're the ones that we like to follow when we, we hold up and it's like instead of a number, there's a target on their back. So in their survey, they found that many of these players received bad investment advice. Some of them got divorced and lost half their, their uh, wealth right there. Uh, or they had people in their lives, often as often happens, with their hands out asking for help. I heard one player say that um, his parents... I guess the conversation probably went something like this. Oh, we, did all, we took you to all those games and everything, so we're going to be your manager. We're going to take care of your money for you. And by the time he retired, there wasn't any. So you, these are the kind of things that happen in our world. This is one of the uh, challenges of wealth, one of the downsides of wealth. As wealth increases, so do the scams, and so do those who will come to take advantage of you. That's vignette number two. For the third vignette, we're going to skip forward to chapter 6, verse 1. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity, meaningless. It is a grievous evil. Do not all go to the one place. So this third vignette is, a, is another sad scene. It's another dark story. Story of a person who has it all. He mentions it in this verse. Wealth, possessions, got all the stuff, got all the toys. and honor respected in the community. Lacks nothing, yet has no power to enjoy it. Not able to enjoy his wealth. He uses a rather striking comparison here. He says that even a stillborn child is better off than this. And I I don't think he's being flippant here. I I know, personally, I've been with, walked alongside of many parents who have lost their children. And not just stillborn or infants, but even adult children. And it's one of the most difficult and heart-wrenching things that a person can experience in life. And I, I don't think he's belittling that or in any way minimizing that. I think what he's saying, though, is it would be better not to live at all. Better not to live at all than to endure the grind of life, a long life, without the ability the ability to enjoy it. So this is, again, another dark scene. Further on here in chapter 6, verse 9, beginning at the end of verse 9, he gives what I'm just going to lump in and call other unforeseen consequences of wealth. He says, though a man should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. So the idea here is a common theme in Ecclesiastes, death is the great equalizer. Whether you're rich, whether you're poor, whether you're wise, whether you're a fool, whether you have it all, whether you have nothing, death is the great equalizer. Nothing we can do to pay that off. He goes on next, he says, all the toil of a man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. This is what we would call today the law of diminishing returns. That when you want something, when you desire something, uh, it's not satisfied. You lose uh, you, you want more of it. And uh, personally, I know probably a lot of you have heard of the Mediterranean diet. Uh, I'm on the American diet, all right? You know, what that means is that I celebrate all the American feast days. Okay, that would be like New Year's Day. We have a big celebration. And then probably the next big one is Super Bowl Sunday, right? We get together and we eat. And then comes Valentine's Day and all the Valentine's candy. And then comes Girl Scout cookies right? We're in the midst of the season right now. So you get that box of Samoas or the thin mints or whatever you love in Girl Scout cookies, and you take a, carefully open the package. It's been slightly shrink-flated. I know it's not quite as many as there used to be, but you, you take one and you put it in your mouth, and you just let it melt, and you say, this is the greatest thing ever. I have never had anything like this. And then you reach in the box, and you take another one out. And what happens to the second one? disappears with the first one right down the hatch but it's not quite as good and then you get to the end of the box and it's like oh man I can't believe I did that and then the next day you say oh I wonder if that girl still has the Girl Scout stand out in front of the grocery store because I'd like another box you cannot satisfy yourself It it just there's a law of diminishing returns Uh, more you have, the more you want. Only a little more. Unsatisfied appetite. Obscurity. He says um, that uh there's uh people, uh the the what does the poor man have that he knows how to conduct himself before the living? The idea here, you know, the the Proverbs, I, I've read a lot of the Proverbs, and there's one that always struck me, and it's kind of an aspirational proverb. It's a it's a it makes you feel a certain way, and it says Um, You see a man skilled in his work, he will serve before kings, he will not serve before ordinary people. And man, that's pretty cool, I like that. I like the idea that if I work hard and I'm good at what I do, the right people are going to notice, right? So it's a motivational kind of thing, but it's not universal. It's not a universal principle. This is more of a universal principle. We're going to toil away our days in obscurity. There's not going to be acclaim and notice. We're not going to get noticed. And so he says in the end here, better to be satisfied with the sight of the eyes than the wondering of the appetite. Just kind of shrink down your thoughts a little bit. Be satisfied because this is vanity and striving after the wind. So he gives these um, little summary statements. Death is a great equalizer. Our appetites cannot be satisfied anyway. We're probably going to labor our lives in front, you know, in obscurity. And we better just be satisfied with what we've got. That's how I think he's he's producing this idea of wealth is vanity. So, his conclusion, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. This is the the first point I'd like to say, and I I want to address this to his first question. Why is wealth vanity? Wealth, like everything else, cannot bear the weight of all our hopes and dreams. It is hebel. It is a breath. It is vanity. And we are hebel. Our lives, the, the stuff can't support all that we ask it to do. There are too many pitfalls, too many challenges out there. And furthermore, not only is wealth vanishing, but we are vanishing under the sun. We're born, we scurry around, and we're gone. So this is what he's trying to make with this kind of marshalling all these points together. That, That it seems like there's kind of two possible outcomes we could take from a message like this. Number one is we can just give up. We can just be content with whatever work we find, and uh, we can just uh, accept the inevitable. As someone once said, the the summary of Ecclesiastes, you're born, you die, somebody gets your stuff. That could be one possible answer. And I wonder, he seems like he's kind of backing these young go-getters into a corner, isn't he? If you're going to live like there's no God, this is where you're going to end up. You're going to live... You're going to die. Somebody's going to get your stuff. So that's one possible trail we could go down. But there's another trail, and I think this trail is more fruitful. And I think this is what he's really getting at. The second idea we could do is question the fundamental assumption of the search. It's question the basic assumption of his search. Specifically, should we be looking only under the sun? Is that the only place we should look for meaning in life? With that in mind I'd like to look at the fourth vignette and then we'll come to a New Testament passage. I'm looking at chapter 5 verse 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. One way to look at the book of Ecclesiastes is to ask yourself the question, where is God Where is God in the book of Ecclesiastes? And even though he's trying to present his findings of life under the sun, he he can't help but have God pop in every now and then. It's like driving down a road on a a dark, cloudy day, and suddenly a ray of sunshine hits the road ahead of you. Or like, I, I like the springtime, and it's like walking out of your house, and you feel that first faint, breath of warm air. That that was not this morning, not in my house. But suddenly you feel like spring is coming. You look out in your yard and you see the crocus and you see the daffodils start to pop up out of the ground. We're suddenly turned from pessimism to joy because what we find here is God giving meaning to work, giving enjoyment, giving pleasure. And this to me is a, is a hint, and, and he says it's not, only, uh, it's not something you can attain, you can go for, that it's God, it's the gift of God to give you that joy in life. And here I think we see a connection, we, we see a connection with Ecclesiastes and the rest of the Bible. You know, he doesn't mention the law, and he doesn't mention a lot of the, the historical uh, world uh, the, of the Israelites But there there are numerous points of connection. And and here is God breaking into the picture. One thing we believe as Christians is that God has revealed himself to humans in a progressive way. It's kind of called progressive revelation or God's redemptive historical work. And what we see in the Bible is that God has, has expanded his knowledge of himself to his people. Long ago, this is Hebrews chapter 1, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, through whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. If you read the Bible and you start at the beginning, you know, you've got the beginning and you've got Adam and Eve and then the the different characters, Noah, onto Abraham... And these were people of faith because they really didn't know a lot about God. God had not revealed a lot of himself to people in those early days. And and that's why, like Abraham, is held up as an example of faith because God spoke and he went. He didn't know much about God or about God's character, uh, but he went on. Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, God revealed himself in small ways to these men. When Moses came along and and he was sent to Egypt, God revealed a lot more of himself there. We see the ten plagues and God's power at work against the Egyptians. We see the Passover where they painted the blood on the doors and God redeemed or rescued his people out. He took them through the Red Sea. Then he gave them his law and he told them, I am a holy God and that's what this means and you are holy people and when you're not holy, this is how you atone for that. God has spoken and revealed himself more and more through David and through Solomon, through kings and through the prophets, and even Koheleth, to John the Baptist, to these last days where God has become one of us, where God has taken on flesh and lived in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. So my second question earlier was, Does Koheleth have the final word on wealth? Is his word the final word? Should we walk out in pessimism uh, realizing that our wealth is meaningless to us? Well, I want to say yes and no. If you're living life under the sun and that's your only perspective, yes. I think he's pretty much correct. If that's the case, nothing matters. But if the answer is no, the answer to this question is no, he does not have the final word because there is an over the sun. Everything matters. Jesus, his apostles, the writers of the New Testament, invite us to participate fully in life over the Son with joy in anticipation of eternal joy and blessings there's a lot of connections here with the New Testament but what I want to do is just go right to first Timothy chapter 6 verse 17 I have that on the slide here for you as to the rich in this present age now I want us to think about this as to the rich in this present age I want us to think about that as applying to each one of us I know we, we probably don't all feel that way But if you think about your life and yourself in in global history and even in the world we live in today, we are certainly wealthy and we are certainly blessed. So hear these words as coming from God to you. Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Now there's a good connection with Ecclesiastes right there. The uncertainty of riches. But on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. We are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good fortune for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So in this life over the sun, this life where God matters and where God is involved, Paul gives us three commands here, to do good, to be generous in good works. To be, to be rich in good works and to be generous and willing to share. Now, this all happens by faith. Koheleth under the sun is by sight, what he can observe in the world. We're talking here about those, the, the world that we live in as believers in Jesus Christ, as those who through his life and death and resurrection and our own confession of Christ have new life, As we've trusted into him. It's by faith. Our belief changes our relationship with God, it changes our relationship with the world, and it changes our relationship with our wealth. And there are times when I wish I could see it the way God sees it. I'm not an early adapter of technology, but if I look in the uh, App Store and I see that the Apple Vision Pro has a new app, that says, see the world as God sees it. I'll probably go get a set. I wish I could see. I have to take it by faith that God is calling me and calling each of us to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share. Are you ready to do that? Maybe this is the missing ingredient in your life. This idea of focusing out on others. Years ago, my wife Gretchen and I did the Dave Ramsey uh, Financial Peace University. And he's got seven steps in there. And step seven is build wealth and give. And as I've thought about that, I think, you know, takes a while to build wealth. We know that's just not something you're probably going to do overnight. Maybe giving should be earlier in the process. Maybe we should start with giving. One of my uh, customers came in and talked to me this week and and she was talking about her business and she said, you know, my business is doing well enough that I feel like I can finally take some time to go do some traveling and enjoy life. And I thought, "Uh, that's really good advice. I wish I would heard it 20 years ago. But when it comes to living generous lives, I think what God's calling us to is to bake that into our lives early. To start out early and young to to cultivate this idea of generous living. Have some joy in the journey. Don't wait to step seven. Don't wait to the end to give. And don't worry about scaling it. Don't feel like you got to do everything all at once. You may know somebody that needs some help with their rent, and you may not be able to help them, but maybe you could help them with a meal. Somebody may need a car, and you're not in the, have the means to do that, but you can maybe give them a ride. Maybe you can't really do much of anything, but maybe make somebody a cup of tea. Don't worry about scaling it. Just try something. Try being generous. Partner with God. See what happens. One thing I love about our church is that you know, a lot of this is already going on. We don't announce it with trumpets or put it up on the screens and talk about how generous we are toward each other or all that we're giving. We don't talk about the way we open up our homes or we fund people's needs or missionaries or give people rides. We just do it. We just do it quietly. And I love that about our church. I love that we emphasize life together. That we, we study the Bible together and we meet in community groups to share our burdens with one another. We minister to others together. This is what Paul calls what I think is the real life, real life. And if you observe like Koheleth did, I think you'll be amazed. I think if you get involved, you'll be transformed. Paul's answer to Ecclesiastes, Paul's answer to life under the sun is life over the sun. I love his phrase here. So that they, so that we, may take hold of that which is truly life. This is real life. Life under the sun is vanity. It's a vapor. It's meaningless. We are the ghosts, appearing as a mist for a little while, then vaporized. Life in the sun, Jesus Christ, is solid. It's life that is truly life. Do you believe it? Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him. And with him, everything thrown in. C.S. Lewis. Let's give our final word to the Lord this morning. As he said in the Gospel of Mark, what does it profit a man? Profit, there's that word, to gain, there's that word. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? Let's pray. Dear Lord, open the eyes of our heart. May we see by faith the wealth of life over the sun, And may that vision point us to what is profitable May we grow in generosity, may we see the needs of those around us, do what we can for them, and in doing so, take hold of the life that is truly life, and may you get all the glory. In your name we pray, amen.